Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. All happy countries are alike. Each unhappy country is unhappy in its own way. And Britain today is miserable, but in the most British way passively waiting for the next election, whenever it's called, to render judgment on the Conservative Party's so far 13-year-long rule, with highlights including the Brexit referendum, the utter political and fiscal mismanagement of the COVID pandemic, Britain's Department of Health estimates up to £15 billion of funding was lost to fraud and mismanagement, including sweetheart deals for Tory donors to supply protective gear for care workers that was not usable. The musical chairs in Downing Street, with three prime ministers since 2019, only one of whom actually faced the country in an election. If Britain's climate was more tropical, and its agricultural produce reflecting of that fact, it really would be a banana republic. I could go on, but I think I will leave that to my guest, Gavin Essler. Gavin spent the bulk of his career as a reporter and presenter for BBC News, and he's written a book about the current situation called Britain is Better Than This, why a great country is failing us all. But before we start the conversation, a reminder. You can now read First Rift Out of History at Substack. It's more of a rapid response to news than this podcast, and less time-consuming. At either Substack or at the podcast website, www.goldfarbpod.com, you can make a donation. It's the season of giving, so please do, so I can keep doing this work. Now... Back to Gavin Essler. I spoke with him a little over two years ago when his previous book, How Britain Ends, was published. And I started this conversation by saying, I assume you think things have got worse in the last few years. I think that's uh, that's an understatement. My last book was about competing, uh, was called How Britain Ends, because it was about the competing nationalisms and particularly English nationalism, which is so much uncovered in Britain, particularly in England. Um, English people confuse very often being British with being English in a way that Scots, Welsh, and Northern Irish people, Northern Ireland people, never do. And it's certainly true that nationalism in Scotland is a bit in abeyance at the moment. Uh, Northern Ireland's a very confused situation, um, but we still have a government that seems to speak for England and doesn't really speak for the other parts of the UK. But I started to think it's not about them, the people we have in government. It's about us for tolerating people who are clearly inept and don't actually represent the majority of people. And as I traveled around with talking about the previous book, I was struck by A, how beautiful the United Kingdom is. It's a lovely country. And B, how engaged and intelligent so many people are in particularly literary festivals and things. And I, I couldn't quite piece together this disjunction between the country that I loved and the idiots <laughs> running it. And that's just, I, I suppose that's it. It's interesting that you, you're focusing on the people. I, I, I sometimes think that one of the unremarked aspects of the effect of colonialism, because that's what everybody talks about now, it is that the people who simply couldn't take it anymore had an empire to go out and go into. And so Australia, United States, Canada, New Zealand are you know, 
democracy isn't isn't happy anywhere at the moment, but they're thriving countries. And part of their ethos is we speak our minds and we take we try to if the government isn't up to much, we do something about it. And I often wonder if the people who never left, that this gets into the bloodstream, into the social metaphorical bloodstream of a country. Well, I think you're on to something, though. I think uh, I think. Uh, the book was a voyage of discovery for me. <clears throat> it began with um, one m- moment of inspiration it was an elderly lady, very posh uh, at Dartington Hall, which is a beautiful, beautiful place, a medieval hall in the West country of England. And I'd spent the day there walking around thinking how wonderful this was. There were kingfishers down in the river Dart and there was trout in the river and so on. And I was going to, do a talk, uh, a, a book talk. And this elderly lady came up to me, uh, very, very posh, sounded like the Queen. And she said, excuse me, do you mind me asking you a question? And she had perfect diction. I was very impressed with this lady. And then she said, could you tell me, please, why are things so shit? And I thought, <laughs> that is actually the qu- the question of our of our days. And what it, where that led me to was to look at not just the individuals, not just people, uh, the people we put in power, but the structures which enable them to be put in power, and also the way in which we are educated, which goes back to your point, about the glories of the British system, which is exceptional and and so exceptional, we don't actually have to have a kind of user's manual, like a constitution of any sort. It's it, We've got bits and pieces, but it, nobody reads it, and it's, it's uh, you know... One of the great um, uh, historians of the Constitution, Walter Badgett, said, you mustn't let light shine on the magic. And Lord Macaulay, another one said, uh, Victorian uh, uh, constitutional expert, said that it's pure gold, unlike the paper money of lesser people like the Americans, no doubt. You know, I mean, this kind of condescending rubbish that we're taught to believe that you you. You don't look into the constitution because it works. It works, doesn't it? it? It's made the greatest empire in the world, except it doesn't work. That's that's the point. And it certainly doesn't work anymore. And it may have worked before when there was this good chap theory of government that British people who go into government are basically good chaps and they're always chaps. And uh, when they know they've, done, they've been a bit of a rotter, they resign because that's what a good chap does. Well, they don't anymore. And we've run out of good chaps and we've got some pretty awful people who you would not, absolutely would not let babysit your children and you would not hand them your wallet. And yet they rise to the top of our government. And we're stuck with them. I mean, it's very interesting, Gavin, that the system seems to have run out. But let's go back to just the idea of a constitution, because not everybody understands that the famous British constitution doesn't really exist. I I did a piece for National Public Radio back in the late 90s, because periodically when things aren't working, it's actually, I did it at the very end of the tour of John Major's government, which was, you know, they were coming on to the 16th or 17th year of being in power, the conservatives, uh, Margaret Thatcher, and then she was defenestrated, and then John Major took over and was elected. Um, to serve out a full term. And I, so so I pitched NPR, well, why don't we do something about the British Constitution? People are up in arms, nothing is working. And I started it 
Along the side of Buckingham Palace runs a street called Constitution Hill. It is a double misnomer. There is no hill, and there is no constitution. And I actually had terrible rows with my editor because she didn't even want me to do the piece. She was an Irish American and had and had that that dislike of the English bred into her. And she said, "There is no constitution. Where's the Where's the story here, Michael? I don't understand what the story is." I said, "Well, there is kind of a constitution. So why don't you tell us about the kind of a constitution?" Well, the, I I approached it as a literary critic rather than as a constitutional expert because I've read quite a lot of constitutional experts, and there's one or two. Uh, including a Canadian uh, constitutional expert who who makes sense, but most of them uh, just uh, rehearse the glories of it. So I thought I, I'm going to. F- There's no one document, but I'm going to find the things that are referenced most often. So I had a look at um, the, the the House of Parliament Library and and what what people say about the Constitution, and it's a metaphor. It it doesn't it's whatever you think it might be, which suits, of course, the people in power. And so, for instance, part of it is uh, the crown is a central part of the British constitution. But what is the crown? Is it a physical object that you put on your head? Is it the king? Is it the idea of the crown in parliament, which is a kind of double metaphor? And so when you read this stuff, I'm afraid time after time, constitutional experts in Britain say, well, there's no single accepted definition of what we mean by the crown. So if there's no single accepted definition of death, for example, or a traffic accident or a red light or, a you know, gravity, we'd be in real trouble. But when you say in Britain, there's no single <laughs> definition of what we're talking about everybody accepts it and and just a couple of things so the result is that not only do we not in reality have a constitution a document we have a metaphor which we say is the constitution but it's essentially what the prime minister and the executive if they can stick together is what they they, they decide we don't even know when the next general election is Because unlike America, where it's every four years and we know it's going to be in a Tuesday in November, and unlike France, where there's a time limit as well, and Macron can't run again because he's had to, we don't know. We haven't got a clue. Rishi Sunak can decide, but even he doesn't know. Or we are the only country in the world, except for the Islamic Republic of Iran, where members of the state religion are also members of the upper house of our parliament, the House of Lords, because we've got bishops there. Why? We are the only we're the only country in Europe, and by by which I mean England actually, because Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland have a proportional representation system for their their parliaments. But the Westminster Parliament is the only parliament in Europe in a democracy in Europe that um has the first past the post system, except Belarus, which isn't a democracy. So we we are exceptional, but we're exceptionally complacent that somehow this is all normal because we're taught that it works in practice, even if it doesn't work in theory. It doesn't work at all. It doesn't. And also, I mean, here we get to that that old you know, chestnut, but it, it is 
a cliche, but partially true, that there is a class system that's so entrenched in this country. When you say good chaps, I mean, the good chaps are people like Boris Johnson, who went to Eton and then to Oxford. The good chaps are Rishi Sunak, who went to another very posh public school. Winchester. To to Winchester. Winchester. Not quite as posh as Eton, but you know. Nothing is as posh as Eton, (laughs) as old Etonians will tell you. And, you know, David, Cameron went to Eton. Most of the most Tory prime ministers have been to Eton and then to Oxford. And and the thing is that people sort of there is a deference to that. There is a a, a pulling of the forelock, you know, tug of the cap downward. Yes, sir, you know better. And I think that that comes down the generations as well. That goes with, you know, the people who had real gumption or who didn't have land to inherit left you know yes. they they yeah. left because they saw they could not they could not get ahead i mean i, I my in-laws being among them after the war you know the war was supposed to change everything world war 2 and it was the same old prejudices against the class they'd been born into so they buggered off well the statistics are that we've had 57 prime ministers in our country's history 20 of them went to eton more than a third of our prime ministers went to one school and half of them, 30 out of 57, slightly more than half, went to Oxford University. Now, (laughs) we have got in Cambridge University more Nobel Prize winners than any country in the world except the United States and Britain itself. And Harvard is the only university that's got more Nobel Prize winners. Oxford hasn't, but Oxford has got more prime ministers than you can shake a stick at. Why? This is the shallow end of the talent pool for me. There are bright, bright people, of course, who go to Eton and bright people who go to Oxford, but not half our prime ministers. This is absurd. And you're absolutely right. And this is this is just the, the point of writing the book was to say, we take this as normal. This is not normal. This is crazy. It's absolutely it, true that it's crazy, although it's normal for England. And again, this comes back to to the big point that you made in the previous book and this time is that the conflation in English minds of the nation with England, as opposed to the nation as a complex union of people who've been living on this island for a very long time, you know, Celts, as well as Anglo-Saxons and then Normans who came over with the all of these things that make for a very rich stew and an ancient, I guess, an ancient foundation. But in the end, it comes down to it's England. It has to be England because there's more England, you know, 80% of people on the island are English or whatever, whatever the percentage, it's not far off that. But anyway, you know, the other thing about why people, why people accept this I joke that the title of my book about my life in England and about the English is going to be The First Shall Be Last. And it will be, you know, a backhanded compliment that, yes, the modern world was invented pretty much here in England. And the first step of it, of course, was the English Revolution in which Charles I, the king in 1640, whatever, lost his head. It was the... And... I still think that that represents, in at least for the ruling classes, a trauma they're still wrestling with 300, well, yeah, almost 400 years later. You know, they backed away from it. They had 
they, they might have we might have got to a written constitution if um Cromwell hadn't been Napoleon of Mont Lelaitre and decided that he would he he wouldn't be such a democrat but you, you know what i'm saying is that they backed away from the prospect of needing a written legal framework for the nation because they ran back and they said oh well Cromwell's dead let's let's bring over Charles II the son of Charles I I'm going to suggest it's even worse than that actually David Frost Lord Frost the person who negotiated the Brexit agreement which has been in my view an utter disaster for Britain for British unity for keeping Northern Ireland within the union and all kinds of things Lord Frost, in what he clearly, I think he went to Oxford, I'm just saying, uh, in what he clearly thought was uh, a heavyweight speech in Brussels, said that one of the reasons he was so in favour of Brexit, despite the fact that he was in favour of being in the European Union a few years ago, um, but the reason he was in favour of Brexit was that the British constitution just evolved, whereas unlike these awful foreign countries where they had, uh, you know, revolutions and they actually sat down and like the Americans and decided, let's have a, at least a basic document, which might tell us how to, to run this place. It won't be perfect, but we'll do our best. Just evolved. Uh, as you point out rightly, we had a king who had his head chopped off. We had uh, the Gordon riots. We had suffragettes throwing themselves under racehorses. We've had all kinds of fighting and uh, rioting. We've had 1688, we had an invasion by William of Orange, which was condoned by some people, but it was an invasion of foreign mercenaries, 12,000, I think, of them. Many of them were German and those were, were, were Dutch under William of Orange. We didn't just evolve. We've had a hugely violent and difficult history. So the idea that we've, by accretion, just got this wonderful document or series of documents written down that teaches how to run the country is just not true. And I'm not saying that the American constitution is perfect. It clearly isn't. No, the, no document is perfect. The Russian constitution is rather brilliant, but Putin does, doesn't pay any attention to it. Doesn't doesn't help anybody in Russia. Um, but at least to have a basic law, as Germany has, which says Berlin will do certain things and all the lender, all the states will do all the other things, doesn't seem to me to be all that difficult in a quite complicated country of nearly 70 million people. But we haven't we don't even think about it because talking about the C word constitution is a boring and b a taboo. You just don't talk about it in Britain. Whereas every American's got an opinion about something rooted in the constitution. That's true. I, I, I remember going to a monthly camp meeting of the sons of Confederate veterans uh, in quotation marks, heritage organization. I was in Natchez, Mississippi, and I brought a pocket edition of the U.S. Constitution because I was looking for an argument, and I found it. <laughs> I really did. And um, you know, this is all about states' rights and why we. It was okay for Mississippi to, to be a slaveholding state, and it was an invasion of our country. Well, I'm not sure about your country, but um, one guy was arguing with me about a particular point, and I flipped the book. I pulled it out of my pocket. I mean, what is literally the our Constitution is actually quite short, and I flipped it at him. So show me. 
And of course he couldn't. And uh, luckily I was rescued from that meeting. I, th- I They might've taken me out the back of the restaurant, I think, and given me, a feather. you know, but anyway, um, but you know, it, it's, there's a kind of at the moment more than at any other time. Cause I first came over here as a student in the very early 1970s and i passed through in the early 1980s and i could feel the difference thatcherism hadn't quite taken hold and you could just see what the 1970s the decade of the 1970s had done to britain economically and also in terms of i think a kind of psychological aspect of society and it wasn't happy and and i don't get the sense that we're in that kind of crisis but what i think I notice most about this moment is not just a political level, but there's a kind of institutional rot in the great institutions of society. And, you know, the NHS, which is the the great glory of Britain, the creation of this free at the point of provision health service, Everybody gets health care. Coming from America, this is it's like a miracle to live here and to become a citizen here. I know that I'm always taken care of. But it's under tremendous pressure at the moment. Its funding is inadequate. The press, and that's the institution I really want to focus on with you. I mean, our our it's our business. It's our you know, our lives. But as an institution in society, the press is profoundly corrupted here. And it Mm. does feed in, I think, to the crisis that you identify in the book. Well, I, I, there's a whole chapter in the book about essentially media and information literacy, and also how lying has become normalized in public life. Uh, On that point, I started with something written Uh, in 2013 in the Daily Telegraph by a journalist called Boris Johnson. And what he wrote was, uh, I've got an Australian friend. Um, It was actually Linton Crosby, who is uh, an advisor to Boris Johnson, who helped run his mayoral campaign and so on. And his Australian friend said, what you need to do if you're losing an argument in politics is throw a dead cat on the table. A dead cat. Everybody, you, you. One moment you're talking about how useless Boris Johnson's policies are, and the next minute everybody's saying, "Oh, there's a dead cat on the table. It's a distraction." And Boris Johnson wrote about that in 2013, and then as Prime Minister, he dead catted constantly, constantly. For instance, when he was in one moment of great trouble, he got a his friend and tennis partner Ross Kempsell, who he's now ennobled to the House of Lords, Lord Kempsell, to interview him about his hobby, Boris Johnson's hobby, which was apparently breaking up old wine crates and turning them into model buses, which he painted. Now, I've asked audiences up and down in the United Kingdom if they've ever seen any evidence of Boris Johnson painting a bus, uh, this great hobby, which newspapers, including The Guardian, said, oh, this is fascinating. We didn't know this. It's nonsense. So that's the dead catting. And the next thing is strategic lying, which happens with Trump as well, which is lying not as a mistake or not even as an occasional deception, but as a pattern of behavior, which you see as a strategy to help you in politics. And that's where the media in particular 
has been corrupted because they follow the dead cats. Then they they allow the strategic lying and don't continue to call it out. And that ends up with what the RAND Corporation calls truth decay, which is that we don't really know what's true and what's false. And that goes back to Hannah Arendt's famous observation that the totalitarian mindset in people, softening them up for some populist leader, the totalitarian mindset is not about being a Nazi or not about being a communist, because most people aren't any of those things. It's about not being able to tell the difference between truth and falsehood. And I think that is where British media has in parts been corrupted. And it also is shown in the collapse in belief in the veracity of our media. And numerous studies, including by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism and others, suggest that three countries have seen a collapse in trust, which is really significant. One is the United States, another is the United Kingdom, and a third is Brazil under Bolsonaro. And that's because we've all had, in our own way, populist leaders who lie a great deal of the time. And that is really serious. And it's very difficult to call it out. And it's very difficult for the BBC in particular to call it out because the BBC is supposed to be balanced, but you can't balance lies and truth. Well, this is, you, 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 there's two points, but you, you get to, to the one I wanted to ask you about personally. Now, you spent many years presenting BBC's flagship news program, Newsnight, which has pretty much been reduced to this week, in fact, to no more than a uh, yet one more talking shop a presenter and three people with opinions chatting rather than actual reported news. But I wonder, how did you deal with, when you were interviewing a senior politician, uh, a leader of a movement, any anyone in the news, and you knew from the first sentence of an answer to the base, to a question that you might open an interview with, that's a lie. How do you, how do you deal with that? Well, I, I, I... I'll be, uh, I think I could say I spent one year of my life on one lie, which was I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. But of course, Bill Clinton wasn't the only human being who's lied about their sexual appetites or, or uh, you know, unwise liaisons and so on. Um, and I think we all, at the time, we all knew it was a lie. I didn't, I didn't get the chance, I have interviewed him, but I didn't get the chance to interview him on that. I cannot think of someone in an interview that I did for the BBC, who was lying directly to my face, I generally can't 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 think of anybody who got you lucky. <laughs> well, I, uh, but but I mean, I think things I think things have changed. I mean, I I've never interviewed Boris Johnson, um, and I think it is very difficult. I used to wonder about my friend and colleague John Sopel when he was. Uh, based in Washington during the Trump administration. How can he do this? Because, you know, the, the Washington Post has said that Trump in his four years told about 30,000 lies, falsehoods, untruths, whatever you want to uh, call them. And some of them were blindingly obvious. I mean, you know, m my um, my inauguration was best attended in the history of humanity kind of thing. You know, just nonsense. You could see they weren't there. So he was telling you something that... Um, that you could not, you, that your own eyes told you something different. I mean, beyond just lying, to me, the, the thing is, when you start an interview and someone intentionally gives you an incorrect fact as the premise for where they're coming from, I mean, how do you say, when I interview and have done either live on the radio, you know, on the radio or 
in the field when I'm making a documentary and somebody starts their answer, because you have to be polite, you have to establish rapport yes. when you're interviewing someone, right? So they start an answer and you just know that's just not true. And if you say straight away, look, your facts are wrong before they even get a full answer out, then you're not going to have an, uh, an interview. It's very interview. difficult. It's very difficult. <clears throat> well, maybe, maybe uh, I'm, I, I really am struggling to think of somebody who's lied to my face directly that I uh, I can think of. I mean, I interviewed uh, terrorists in Northern Ireland and other people, and I suspect if I asked them, "Have you ever killed anybody?" they would say no. But uh, I, I um, since they were members of paramilitary groups, I suppose that people sitting at home would would have recognised that they were perhaps being economical with the truth. But I can't. I can th I can think of many politicians who massage things and uh who who say things from a particular perspective that that is misleading uh and definitely in their own interests but you just have to keep pressing them and pointing out that that's not how everything is seen what we have now is uh, a state where lying has become so normalized that it's almost unremarkable and not just not just lying i mean i was listening to an interview this morning with um on the bbc radio with a government minister who was talking about the migration problem in this country as if he was a member of the opposition who was suddenly going to fix it i mean they've been in power for 13 years it he didn't lie but he was being deliberately misleading and obfuscatory by suggesting that they've really got a grip on it now and there will be 300,000 fewer people coming next year. It's always next year. It's always jam tomorrow and no migrants tomorrow and so on. So that's deliberately misleading. And he was challenged robustly on BBC Radio this morning, I have to say. Oh, well, that's good. But let me go back into, into the broader question when you mentioned UK us and brazil as places that that have this kind of right-wing media ecosystem i mean one of the things of course in this country and it's very noticeable when you come from america is the way in which the press is completely skewed to supporting the conservative party in a, a quite propagandistic way and I used to argue about this point with Michael White, who was the Guardian's political editor for many years and used to report from Washington and he used to appear with us on, on Dateline, the BBC program. And he said, oh, Mike, he always called me Mike. Oh, Mike, uh, the, the press doesn't have that kind of power in this country. And I would say, but Michael, if I go to the news agencies, I mean, younger people will never know what a news agent is since it's all online now. I walk in to buy a pack of gum before I get on the bus to come downtown to the office. And I see a rack with eight, ten newspapers with screaming headlines about how terrible labor is. And I, I do think it's like free advertising. And I think that one of the things people don't understand about how you manage to get all of these governments elected and then re-elected, even though their historical records are open to question, is that this is a kind of environment in which they exist. And in America, when you walk into a lobby now, you're as likely to find Fox News on television as any other news channel. And these things go in. They go in. 
Yeah, there's 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 a number of issues there. But you're you're broadly right. I mean, I noticed today's headlines in a number of newspapers, particularly in the most popular ones, are essentially government crackdown on migration, 300,000 fewer people coming in. I mean, that's an utterly tendentious made up figure uh, because it sounds sounds quite good. I mean, th- this is the same government that promised 20,000 new police officers, having cut 20,000 old police officers. Or, the, you know, they, the, there's always a round figure because that's what makes a headline. And the, these headlines are treated seriously. And if people are not media literate and don't think, wait a minute, who is telling me this? Why are they telling me this? Is it possibly not true? Um, then then we're going to have a problem. The other part of it, which is, again, a, an astonishing part of English exceptionalism, is that it's okay for people to have massive newspaper interests to support broadly the Conservative government, and yet to be non-resident for tax purposes. You know, large sections of our press are owned by people who don't pay taxes here like other normal people. Why? Um, And in the case of Rupert Murdoch, I mean, he's an incredibly successful businessman. He's also an American because he probably wouldn't be able to have the kind of influence in the United States that he has now if he were an Australian, which is what he started out life as. So... We are a very, very odd, complacent country which allows this to happen. And it's not just, I don't blame, you know, the people who own the mail or the people who own the sun for being the way they are. I blame the rest of us for not actually thinking that this is not how you would like to have a a reasonably informative press in our country. I want to broaden the conversation out because Britain's unwritten constitution or whatever you want to call it, that little piece of magic or something, this metaphor with the name a constitution on it, is in in showing itself not to be fit for purpose in the 21st century. But it's also true that the American constitution is showing itself to be not fit for purpose and in need of a serious, not reimagining, but just upgrade. The parts that need to be fixed and the mechanisms for fixing them exist, but they aren't going to be, given the state of American politics. You lived in America, and and you were one of the very first people to clock the underlying anger in the United States in the 1990s that would find expression ultimately in a vote for Donald Trump and the creation of the MAGA movement. You have to call it a movement. My question is, both countries seem to be in some kind of constitutional political crisis. Do you think the crises are linked or are they very separate and distinct? Is there a couple of issues? One is they're they're definitely linked. Uh, I think there's a worldwide democratic recession. Democracy is in trouble in lots of places. You know, there are bright spots, but democracy is really in trouble. We've seen it in Argentina most recently. And it's at the root cause is something very similar. I I wrote the book that you're referring to in the the late 1990s called The United States of Anger, because I traveled to 48 states um, and talked to so many people. And there was clearly a disjunction between the America of my American dream and the, this wonderful country that I really love 
and how middle class Americans felt about it. And it was there was a, a cop in um, Annapolis, Maryland, a police officer who said my father had been a cop and he worked and uh, my mo mother didn't work and we had a great standard of living. And now he said, I work, my wife works. And he said, I get uh, three days off in a row. And each of those days I work as a bouncer in a nightclub, I think it was, and as a security guard somewhere else. He said, I don't get a day off and we can barely make ends meet. And this is a, a police officer, you know, with a middle-aged police officer. There was a sense of anger about the way things had turned out and how the American dream wasn't working for him. And there's a, a simmering, but a very British sense of anger about how things don't work in Britain as well. People are working very hard to make ends meet. And yet you refer to, you know, this great genius of Britain and the creating, uh, Clement Attlee creating the National Health Service and so on. Our public sector lives, the things that are done through public utilities or what used to be public utilities, many of which have been privatized through the health service and so on. Nothing works. The trains don't even work. I get on trains quite a lot. So often they're now canceled or there's problems or there's strikes because people feel they're underpaid. The, uh, the sewage in our rivers, the sewage on our beaches, the, um, the potholes in our roads, the schools, the not the Eatons, they're doing fine, but the schools that we pay money for in our taxes uh, very often are overcrowded. They've got bigger, bigger classes than they should have. And some of the buildings are actually falling down. And this is despite, you know, under Tony Blair, he spent a lot of money improving British schools and did so. Our universities are starved starve for cash, uh, with some notable exceptions. Um, our students are finding it that they graduate with huge amounts of debt. The things that we're good at, our culture, has been stifled by Brexit. I'm, I'm married to a musician. I can't tell you how many musicians tell me about cabotage, a word I'd never even heard of. But it means if you're in a band and you've got 10 trucks full of equipment, you go to uh, the European Union, you can make three stops, and then you have to change all the stuff into EU-registered trucks. This is a ridiculous way of stopping British culture spreading around the world. And there's there's other things about working visas and all that sort of stuff. So we've done all this to ourselves. And it's hardly surprising that there is a democratic recession in Britain. And the one other thing about it is we get a government, in the case of Boris Johnson, who was elected in 2019, where Johnson tells us he had a stonking majority. He did of 80 seats in the House of Parliament, except that this was based on just 43.6% of voters. And a third of us don't vote at all because we're so fed up with the system, which means about a third of the British people who could have voted for Johnson did vote for Johnson. And the rest of us either couldn't be bothered or voted for somebody else. That's not a, a, a stonking majority. As my spell check on my Apple Mac said, it's a stinking majority. <laughs> so, I'm not trying to sound miserable. I'm just cataloguing the kind of lives that people feel that they should have, that they should be leading in a great country are not the lives that most of us are leading. When you can't even get an appointment with a doctor, where you cannot anymore get an NHS um, dentist, it's very, very difficult to do so. And so on and so on and so on. Can you swim, Gavin? 
I uh, do. The, the world, the world, the world should know that the Gavin lives near the sea and and likes to go in all weathers for for a <laughs> refreshing <today>. plunge, for <laughs> a refreshing plunge. But I mean, so many beaches around this island are flooded with sewage now. Yeah. Well, the, the beach here, uh, I'm on part of the Kent coast, and there's other parts of the Kent coast where I wouldn't go in. But uh, for about 15 miles either way of here, it seems to be clean. And the reason that it's flooded with sewage is that going back to the Thatcher era, the water company water companies were privatized. These were national assets. They were privatized. But when we left the European Union, there were no longer regulations put on them from Europe about how much they could flush and and how they were supposed to clean up the the sewage. Yep. And and somehow, for instance, Thames Water uh, is not quite bankrupt, but is in real financial difficulty. But yet they managed to make enormous profits, which have gone somewhere, but haven't certainly gone into fixing all the pipes. There's something like I I, I forget the figure, but it's something like three trillion liters of water a year are lost through leaking pipes in the United Kingdom. It's it's some enormous figure with lots of zeros at the end of it. Well, it rains a lot here. So I mean, there's always, there's always a fresh <laughs> supply coming down. Actually, it doesn't rain as much as people think. It's gray and grim, but it doesn't rain as much, particularly in the Southeast, as, as you might think. I'm going to wrap this up and, and say some of this despair is the knowledge that we're speaking on the 5th of December, the last election was on the 9th of December in 2019. And the maximum, there is a rule, the maximum length of a term of a parliament is five years. So we have just about 51 weeks more to endure unless one day the current prime minister, who may not be the prime minister a year from now to lead the Conservative Party, they're a fratricidal crew, um, unless the current prime minister, Rishi Sunak, decides to do the decent thing and get it over with so that they, the Conservatives can begin their reorganization. We have 51 weeks of this. And I think a lot of people are in despair about that as well. Well, they have a right to be. I, I, I'm i going to be the bearer of good news, or at least a prediction. I could be completely wrong, but I've been talking to people in the Labour Party who think the election could be in May. And they're, uh, I questioned this logic because I thought Sunak would hang on as long as possible because he can't think of anything else to do. But the Labour Party logic is it will be May because May is when we already have local elections. And if the Conservatives do badly again in the local elections, Rishi Sunak, who already seems to be dead man walking as far as, you know, the fratricide within the party, it will get even worse. Whereas if he calls an election for May, the party will have to come together and stop its infighting and it will put the rest of us out of our misery. So <laughs> out of their misery, perhaps I should say. So could be wrong. And I suspect Mr. Sunak himself doesn't even know when the election will be, which is another one of these idiotic lacunae of the British system. But it could be it could be in May. So we may not have to wait 51 weeks. Thank goodness. Springtime. <laughs> Springtime. Tra-la, it's May, the gorgeous month of May. Uh, I hope so. But, it, you know, the terrible truth is that the bigger problem will all will remain 
until a reforming government is elected here with a sufficient majority to genuinely reform things like removing the bishops from the House of Lords and some of the people, Boris Johnson, some of his cronies as well, uh, and define what the upper house should be. And in the same way, I, I suppose the American system requires a significant one-party landslide to address something like the Electoral College, which you know has gummed up the works now twice in the 21st century and to America's detriment. I mean, little, you know, things that need to be tinkered even on a written constitution. Yes, but you have a mechanism. I think the difference is Americans, many Americans realize that the, the American constitution, while it is a wonderful document, is flawed. Uh, it was created by humans who recognized it was it would be flawed and needs to be changed. In Britain, we haven't even got there yet. If you mention the C word constitution in British polite society, there's a kind of, oh, God. And that's because we're taught to think it's boring. And it is boring. But it's also actually the reason why we're in such a mess. Gavin Esler, thank you very much. Thank you. That was cheerful. Well, it is the season of good cheer. My thanks again to Gavin Esler. Once again, his book is called Britain is Better Than This. It really is, but the society has lost its way a bit. And as it is the season of good cheer, a reminder, please make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. <laughs>